Listen up, get ready, I'm not gonna take no more. There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul. Buckle up, get ready, we're not gonna sit back. Hello, everybody, you ladies, you gentlemen, your brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, family, comrades, all you citizens of the world. Welcome to another edition of the Live from the Heartland show. I am Michael James. I'm here in Chicago in the 49th Ward, a very blue place to be. It's a cold winter day. Well, it's not that cold today. It was colder yesterday. I'm a little bit warmed up. I've got my back to the fireplace. A couple of good things. Let's start off with that. The governor of Illinois has found another $160 million for the migrant crisis. That's a good thing. I learned, too, that Chicago and Cook County has the largest concentrations of Palestinians in the country. And that would partly explain why our Senator Dick Durbin has been calling for the two-state solution. And a number of people in the Senate are challenging Biden on his stance on Israel. They want assurance that there'll be more humanitarian aid and less killing of civilians. Let's hope that works out. On the bad front, COVID is on the rise. People should pay attention to it. I'm slow to that. My wife, Paige, really pushes it. We've known people very close to us who've gotten COVID again. And apparently, if you watch the news or listen to me, you'll know that COVID is again on the rise. We have a couple of wars going on that we need to really pay attention to, be involved with not only in Ukraine, but in the Middle East. There are a lot of Trump lies going on out there, but he seems to be getting boxed in in the courts. Uh, we'll see how that all turns out. And even though the governor's giving $160 million more, there's still a lot of people, not only in Chicago, but other places, needing shelter. On the labor front, some strikes have been settled. I think we already talked about that. I couldn't find any information on the Columbia College strike today. I did find that there are 500 nurses at Ascension St. Joseph in Joliet, not too far from Chicago, went on strike on Tuesday. And the American Airlines flight attendants are asking for permission to strike. I don't know why they need to get permission, but apparently that's the deal. And they, I think we're turned down on that, but I think that's an ongoing situation. On the sports front, we're going to have a guest today that's going to tell us a really neat story about basketball and civil rights. But here on the home front, the Bears did win on Monday night. I was so glad. They're not getting a lot of credit yet, even though they did it. I've watched them all year, and there's some moments they're great. But anyhow... They won, and we'll see if they can win again. Hallelujah. And the Bulls are really having their moments. They're not doing too well. And uh, let's just say they're having a really rough time. And I'm not sure how many days till baseball spring training, but we'll start letting you know on that. On the uh, memoriam front, two notable people, Rosalind Carter passed away, and it's been all over the news. All the former first ladies who are alive went to the memorial for her in Atlanta. On Tuesday, she was something else. She was quite a woman, and we certainly do like Jimmy Carter, too. He's not going to be around too long, but I was really glad that he came out for his wife's memorial. Another death I just learned about today was John Nichols, who wrote the Milagro Beanfield War trilogy, has passed away. Those are some great books, and I encourage you to look at them. You know, it's getting colder. There's a lot of issues going on in the world. All I'm going to say is that you need to be involved in every way you can, encouraging your friends, your neighbors, distant relatives, whoever, to pay attention, to give them the solid information about what's really going on, 
and to go up against these lies that get pushed out into the world by right-wing media. I don't know how it happened, but I get about 10 different emails a day from a paper like the New York Sun, the Right Daily, that kind of thing, pushing right-wing ideas and uh, just really a, a miss around what's really going on. Uh, so I don't know if you all get that, and I, I hopefully you don't have to see it, but uh, pay attention because we have serious issues that we have to deal with, and it's our time. You know, the 60s were something else. We made a lot of advancements. The right has challenged them ever since, and we have to keep working on it. Okay, we're going to take a short musical break, and we'll be back with our first guest, the filmmaker Lloyd Webb. Stay tuned here on the left end of your dial. Everybody was kung fu fighting. Those kids were fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. But they fought with expert timing. There were funky Chinamen from funky Chinatown. They were chopping them up. They were chopping them down. It's an ancient Chinese. everybody welcome back to live from the heartland once again it's michael james here in the 49th ward the very blue 49th ward and uh way back in uh, my life i met this wonderful guy named floyd webb he is a filmmaker of some renown here in chicago and i'm looking forward to catching up with him so floyd given all that how are you doing i'm doing all right for an old man uh, you don't even know what old is yet <laughs> <It's great. laughs> Do you work out at all? Do you get any exercise? I get, you know what? About twice, I get about three miles a day walking, two or three miles a day walking, and then then on like Saturdays and Sundays, I'll go and take an eight or a ten mile walk. Oh, that's good. I need to do more walking. I do swimming yeah, and yeah, but I haven't been in the gym. But I got to get in the gym though. Got to get in the gym. They're wonderful. I think all of us old guys really got to do it. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. My my uh, my my uh, my my son's maternal grandfather is ninety four. He's in the gym like every day. Every day. Uh, well, one of the things that I I, I kind of missed having you on before the Black Light Film Festival or the Black, Black Harvest Film Festival. 
Yeah. Um, there's a lot of film festivals to keep track of these days, but you're going to fill us in on that maybe. But yeah. how about you give us a little bit of an overview about what went on at the Black Harvest Film Festival, how it went, your thoughts, how people can see, you know, that kind of thing. But well, I wasn't there about. Well, I wasn't really there for the whole festival. Uh, this is the 50th anniversary of Chicago filmmakers. And so um, I founded a film festival, Blacklight Film Festival, in 1982 at Chicago Filmmakers when they were on at 6 West Hubbard. And we went on for 12 years, and then Black Harvest came up after that. So, ah, wanted, so they wanted to, yeah, so they wanted to do, so we wanted to do like a Blacklight, a couple of Blacklight screenings, and so we're, we're going to do two, two more. But, uh, but, but the main screening I wanted to do was an Oscar Michaud film, because one of the things we did when I was doing Blacklight is we helped find an Oscar Michaud film called Within Our Gates that was made in 1920, and it was found in the Spanish Film Archive. And when the film was found, uh, we presented it at the, at the School of the Film of the Art Institute with Edward Wilkerson and his group, Eight Bold Souls. So we did the first like live music track to a screening of an Oscar Michaud film. You know, that, that film hadn't been shown here since, probably since 1921, because, of, because his films were always being censored because they were so radical, because they, because they criticized preachers. It was really... I mean, uh, he he did some really, uh, he really did some really socially conscious stuff that made a lot of people uncomfortable, especially Baptist preachers, you know. Um, and um, so I wanted to show this film. I got Ed Wilkerson again. He no longer has eight bold souls because the eight bold souls are now eight old souls, right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so all the eight. CM guys, you know, the ACM Big Ben, I call it the AARP Big Ben now. So, uh, but they know I do. It's, it's Tell not people a, a little bit about it, just briefly about the AACM. So ACM, they the ACM is a musician's organization that was founded in the 1960s in order to, in order to promote original music, uh, original, authentic, Black creative music. Not jazz. People, you know, they don't use the word jazz. They use cre creative music, or, or they call it great, great black music, and um, and bands like the Art Ensemble of Chicago, Henry Threadgill, uh, and and Air, uh, Muhal Richard Abrams. Uh, I mean, all of these musicians came out of Chicago and became world renowned. Anthony Braxton, uh, Chico Freeman, all of these people went, went out. And became like world re renowned, you know. And that organization had a free a free music school that I went to with Ed Wilkerson, and Ed Wilkerson was my 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 composition teacher, and I got to know him through the AACM, you know. And so Ed was the person that I called. Ed was in my first film. He provided music for my first film. He was in my first, film. and I and I asked him to do the music of that first Oscar Michelle film. So when I decided to do this screening. I wanted to do uh, Symbol of the Unconquered, a 1920 film, another film that Oscar Michaud made, but he made it in um, Fort Lee, New Jersey, where he was sharing studio space. He was he was in he was in the same studio spaces as all as all of the big time Hollywood studios. You know, uh, that's something I just found out because I was in Fort Lee walking down the street and there was an Oscar Michaud star in in front of the Barrymore Film Film Museum. And um, and uh, so we did this film because the question of black land, the acquisition and theft of black land, 
100 years later, is still an issue. And so the film is about a woman who goes, who goes down south to claim a piece of land that was left to her by her grandfather. And she runs into this guy who's half white, half black, but he's passing as white. And when he finds out about this land she has, he, he treats her horribly. He gets with the Ku Klux Klan, and, and they try to run her off the land. But she meets this other guy, this really uprighteous, nice, heroic guy, you know, this Dudley Do-Right kind of guy. Matter of fact, he looks like a black D Dudley Do-Right, you know? And uh, sure that would be. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, um, and they thwart, thwart the Klan, you know? So Oscar Michaud was making films in opposition and to provide an alternative to films like Birth of a Nation, which, you know, which, you know, most of those films right back then, especially uh, between 1910 and 1920, they were all films that kind of reflected this, this like stereotypical view, you know, of, of, of black people, you know, like these images of black people that had come out of the, that had, had come out, out of uh, reconstruction, you know, matter of fact, the early films of, uh, of Edison, you know, nigger in the wood pile, the uh, chicken thief, you know, watermelon patch, all of this, this these were the films that, that Edison was, was, was doing. And black filmmakers came along and challenged those images and found, and, and they had a, a network, a dis distribution network. So we showed that film uh, and it was what, sort what's of- What's the name of that film? Symbol of the Unconquered, 1920. You can find it online. If you, you can find it on, on, uh, on, um, on uh, YouTube. And, and, and we're gonna prevent it on my streaming channel, blackness.tv with the music that it, it recorded, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, and so that's what we did there. And uh, the uh, music was, so we had a trio. So it was electronic music, didgeridoo, saxophone, guitar, piano, you know? It was a very different kind of a, a site. You know, like a lot, a lot of people use orchestras or they use, uh, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll use quartets. So I wanted to do something different. I'm planning on doing a whole series of of, uh, of uh, silent films, and I want to use like South Indian music. I want to use some some uh, the uh, music of the uh, the uh, Mon Mongolian music. Since we got a Mongolian band that's performing on Friday nights in Chicago all the time, I don't know if you've seen seen. I don't know about that. I'd be oh man, they are hot. They are hot. I'll, I'll send you some some information about them. Yeah, yeah. they play at a bar on the north north side here every Friday night, you know? Let yeah. me ask you a couple things about, uh, tell me, I want to learn a little bit more about Oscar Michaud, but I, oh, also, okay. I also, my understanding was there a pretty strong black film industry here in Chicago in the early oh, days. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yes it was. St. Augustine's College is now, if it still exists, up mm -hmm. in Uptown, I think was where it was located. But tell us about that, the early days of black filmmaking, not only yeah. in the country, but Chicago. Yeah, well, in Chicago, the very first black film studio was by a guy named William Foster. William Foster was a sports writer for the Chicago Tribune. He was a promoter of vaudeville, and he was a railroad porter who distributed the Chicago Defender down south. He was, you know, he was one of the guys taking the papers down there and encouraging people to make the great migration to come work in the factories and to work work in the stock, stockyards here. And um, and he uh, he set up at the Peking Theater, 
down there by the by IIT or Armour Institute at the time. And uh, he, he set up his, and he made about 10 or 15 films. Uh, he left Chicago, he went to LA. Uh, that was pretty much a bust, but he made a number of films. He was marginally successful, but it wasn't sustainable because he was a black man trying to be successful in a, you know, in Jim, Jim Crow of America. And uh, he, uh, uh, he, um, he didn't, he had a lot of drive, but, but you know, Oscar Michaud was the guy who came along and he, he figured stuff out. Oscar Michaud would go state to state, city to city, go to theaters, show them pictures of what he was gonna do, tell them about the film, get them excited, and then have them pay money up front. So they would pay the money up front he would go to like you know 50 60 theaters and have them give him you know thousand bucks a piece or something and he could make a film they would get to the film they, you know they would get uh uh and, and they would split the box office you know the net of the box office after the, their uh their money was was returned you know and he, he he distributed his films internationally you know and he was part of the first generation of hollywood which was fort lee new, new jersey you know um and he, um, you know, he was really a leader in the in in the, in the black film realm. But we had about this about there was about eight film studios within walking distance of of, of my house. I live on Thirty Third and, and Prairie. There was there was about eight studios that, in in that area, starting at Twenty Ninth Street down to like Forty Forty Third. Oscar Michaud had an office on Thirty Thirty Fourth and, and State Street. I've been working on an augmented reality project. To re recreate these places, you know, like you know, like you'll be able to take your phone, and when you <laughs> get to the location, you hold your phone up, and you'll be able to see Oscar Michaud standing in the spot he would have been standing in back in 1925, you know, and all all all, all of these studios, and you know, I'm doing it in like three generations, first generations, it's just black and white, two two dimensional images, but the second generation it'll be. Uh, Three 3D images, uh, uh, 3D animated images, and the third generation will be you'll be able to talk to him and ask him questions. And so, you're going to do all this out of that office you're sitting in? I'm going to do all of it if I'm still. Yeah, if I can keep making the rent. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So let me let me ask you. I really like this idea of Michelle going around to mm -hmm. different theaters and getting money in advance for a movie he was going to produce and then distribute to those very theaters that gave him the moolah. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. wondering uh, if that's a technique that uh, younger filmmakers might be able to use in some well, way. Well, you know, you you think that that would work, but it's like nobody trusts anybody. You, you know what I mean? Nobody trusts anybody. You know, Oscar Michaud was a was was the ultimate. Well, you know who who did stuff like that was was Tyler Perry. That's how Tyler Perry started in like in like Ch Chitlin Circuit Theater. He used to be here every year at, at the Airy Crown Theater. Doing those 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 church plays. That's how he made his money. Was doing these plays at the Airy Crown Theater, you know. And he did those those in all over the country. And I'm sure he had churches, you know, throwing in money so that they could share in the box office, you know. So so Tyler Perry was able to do that. Anybody who could, I mean, like actually, anybody in the creative field could actually do it if you can find people that are willing to support your 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 uh, your creative endeavor i started a streaming channel in order to get people to subscribe to the channel for 3.99 a month for 39 dollars a year and if i can get 100,000 people in the next 5 years 
you know, to, to pay $3.99. I'm not going to change it. I'm going to keep keep it at $3.99. Right. If I can get 100,000 people, that's $300,000 a month. And I can buy content and I can pr pr produce work. I can bring in new filmmakers and stuff, you know. I like it. Well, I you let me know and I'll chip in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm gonna be doing. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do like a, like uh, the the channel's been up about five years, but I just haven't done a launch or anything because I was so busy keeping the channel open. You want to tell people how they get to it? Yeah, blackness.tv, B-L-A-C-K-N-U-S-S.tv, like the like like the Roland Kirk song. One more time, black. Nuss, B-L-A-C-K-N-U-S-S, Blackness. Black yeah, just look up Roland Kirk Blackness, and then you'll remember. If Once you hear the song, you'll never forget it. You know, speaking of Roland Kirk, with mm -hmm. the stretch, the Mandela, the saxophone, yeah. Yeah. I, I went to the Sutherland Lounge, which used to be down there on the south side. Uh -huh. right? And uh, I was young. It was in, like, in the early 60s, mm -hmm. and I just was blown away by Roland yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll use some Roland Kirk with the music around this interview. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> Roland Kirk was one of my flute teachers. I used to go down to the jazz. Oh, wow. I used to go down to the jazz showcase and go backstage and you know, and like mess around with him. And when I was in London, he would come to uh Ronnie, Ronnie Scott's and I'd go down there and you know, chase chase him now. Hey man, time for another flute lesson, you know. Well, Floyd, let me go back to the uh, film festival. So the Black Light was a thing you created, went on for 12 years. And yeah. it, what I've got here is a return to Black Harvest. So right. what, what did you do this year with uh, at Black Harvest? And is there All I did was the Oscar Michaud film. Oscar Michaud, okay. the live, live music for silent film. That's, all, that's all, all I did. And we talked about the film afterwards. We talked about the music. Yeah, I gave a little. Were there any other films there that you remember or saw that you want to you tell? No, I'm I'm working on a film, so I came back and I'm and I have to in the evenings I have to come back and look over this footage and I'm working on the special effects and stuff and 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 then I got another project we we're shooting in Japan at the same time, you know. And the Count Dante thing is, you know, I have to do research. ah the Count Dante. I want to hear more about that. <laughs> both you and my cousin Adam James, who usually comes on and. Talk sports and his own film that he's involved with. Uh -huh. uh, he he's the guy that turned me on to Count Dante, and then you yeah. chime. Tell the people about it. It's worth hearing. Okay, Count Dante was a martial artist in Chicago. He started out as a boxer. He was a rich Irish kid from Beverly. He went to uh, he went to Mount Carmel High School. His dad was one of the founders of Ashland Bank out in in Beverly. His his dad was one of the one of the most popular Obi-Ganis in the city. He delivered everybody's baby on the South Side, Beverly area. Anyway, he was he was a rich kid. He uh, got involved in boxing. He went away to the military, got involved in martial arts. He came back here and decided to open a school. And the funny part was, uh, back in 1950s, if you wanted to study martial arts, you had to be white because the police didn't want Hispanic people or black people learning martial arts. So you couldn't go to a traditional martial arts school. So you couldn't just go into the, the uh, jujitsu Institute and get judo lessons unless, uh, unless, it, unless you were in Mas Tamura's underground railroad martial arts class. It took place after 10 o'clock at night after all the white people left, you know, and this is true stuff, right? So like, <laughs> 
you know, like mar martial arts in Chicago was uh, was was really at a high level because Chicago was the only city that would take Japanese internees after World War II. So, so you had all the Japanese attorneys come here and they set up on Belmont, set up on 39th Street. Uh, you, uh, you, you had a, a lot of people who taught, uh, who, who taught, uh, who taught judo and who taught kendo. Uh, they were doing classes at the um, at at the different different YMCA's. Like Lawson YMCA had 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 like judo classes and all those guys and the uh, uh, aikido guys the same same thing. We were very strong in martial arts because of who we got. Uh, uh, Tokyo Rose, uh, Madam Madam Taburi from Taburi Imports up on Belmont. I remember she, we used to buy yeah. stuff for the Heartland General Store there. Yeah, yeah. Well, she well she was she, the one to talk to the U.S. troops, trying to get them to give in. Well, yeah, she yeah she was forced into that role because yeah. she was an American. You know, she was she was uh you know she she was an American. She was she was just Japanese American. And she had to go take care of her grandmother because nobody else could do it. And and the war started and they and they arrested her. They arrested her, put her in a camp, and then forced her to do that every day. But it wasn't just her. There was about 10 or 12 Tokyo Roses because it was a 24-hour-a-day job. Yeah. But she was the only one who admitted to doing it. And she took the rap for everybody. You know, she, you know, they they scapegoated her. You know, they had an enemy. You you know how this stuff goes here. You know, they identify enemy, then they persecute. They run their picture all over the place. Oh, they're this, this evil person. You know, and that's why Jimmy was it was it Jimmy Carter or was it Clinton who uh, who uh, par pardoned her? I'm and not they, sure. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so we used to buy our our like martial arts her. supplies. We used to buy our martial arts so supplies from from her. She was she was one of the only places where you could get and uh, like like. Uh, like a real Kodokan judo gi, you know, and plus she she had this, you know, she had a little tea room in the back, you know, and all these Japanese candies and things, and all all of these trinkets and these, you know, she she just imported lot, lots lots of stuff, but and so and and John Key and Count Dante is the one who told us that's where you go to buy your karate, and 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 your judo judo outfits, but karate wasn't popular in the fifties. Karate didn't get popular until television. Until uh, because judo was the thing. I mean, from from early 1900, judo was the number one or Asian martial arts in the country. Um, karate came about after World War II, after a lot of soldiers had come through Okinawa. You know, some of them stayed and they started to study, study striking arts. You know, and they started to put striking arts into the movies. And Count Dante was, uh, you know, he started in boxing with. Um, uh, my God, what's the guy's name? Johnny Coolen. He was a Bantan weight boxer. Had a had a boxing gym on 63rd, right off University. You could see it from from the L, right? You would pass there, and then as you went downtown, if you took the took, took the right train, it would go all the way around the loop. And when you came back up Van Buren, you would see the Jiu Jitsu Institute, and you would look inside, and it would be all this big mat with all these guys practicing judo, you know. And that's where, you know, and that's where a lot of us, how we got introduced to like both boxing and judo was riding on that train, you know, but, but the movies, um, uh, TV shows, the, the, the saint, secret agent man, man from uncle, even before James Bond, the, the saint was a, 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 a British TV show was, was using, you using, using striking martial arts, you know, 
you know, we had. So how, how far along are you on in your Count Dante movie? Well, we've been talking about it for a couple of years. Whenever well, I well, you know what? This these guys that I want, these guys at Duality Entertainment, they want to do the Tiger King Count Dante. I want to do the social history of martial arts Count Dante. Yeah. They want to go back and talk to all the ratchet characters involved in martial arts, and especially the people who tried to stop me from making the film, people in Fall River, Massachusetts, who took me to federal court, only to end up owing me $15,000. I hope you got it. Anyhow, nope, 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 I didn't yeah. want it because these guys didn't have the money. I mean, I had to get it from them $200, $250 a month. Who wants yeah. to collect from people who don't want to pay? Yeah, you can work it out. Let me ask you, uh, you know, you mentioned your own films. Why don't you tell people, we're going to run out of time. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, my only uh, thing about judo is I remember when I was playing football at Lake Forest, I was in the weight room and there was a guy in there doing judo stuff. And I said, does this work? <laughs> he kicked my ass. Just <laughs> little guy. Uh -huh. So I have a lot of respect for that. But Floyd, before we check out, why don't you tell us about the films you've already made and maybe how people can see them and anything else you want to share? Well, I was a producer on a film called Daughters of the Dust, if people haven't seen it. Daughters of the Dust was made in 1992, and it became, last year was chosen by Sight and Sound magazine, uh, the uh, British Film Institute's uh, popular organ, as one of the best films of the past hundred years. It was like number 40 or something like that, one of the best right. films of the, of the, of the last 100, 100 years. I worked on do documentaries like The World and Nat King Cole, which was an American master's piece. I worked on The March with, with uh, John Acumfra, uh, which was about the 50th anniversary of The March on Washington. I worked on a thing called uh, uh, Last Angel of History, about Black science fiction, before people started talking about Afrofuturism, you know. Um, I've, uh, as a result of that, I have a, I have a festival, I have a competition. I have an annual Afrofuturism film competition that's going into its seven year, seventh year this year. And we, and we show the winning films at, at, uh, at uh, Chicago filmmakers. How do and, people find that site? Uh, free, uh, film, film, film freeway, film, filmfreeway.com. That's the, yeah, that's where, where you, where you enter. Yeah. And, um, and what else, and what else am I doing? And uh, yeah, I, I worked on a film with with Malik Shabazz, who, who who recently. Oh no, Saint Saint Clairborn. I worked with Saint Clairborn, documentary filmmaker, on a thing called called Big City Blues about blues in Chicago. That's one of my favorite short short films. You know, we got some of the last of the great of the blues greats in that short short film. Well, Floyd Webb, if you send me uh, a list of uh, things that people should watch. Okay. Uh, we'll try and put it up with, along with this for the people who view. Oh, show. one thing they should watch right now: "Surrounded" on Prime. It's uh, starring uh, Letitia. Oh my God, I can't remember her name. The same, the, the woman who 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 who's in Black Panther. It's a western. It's about a black woman who masquerades as a man and goes off and joins the Buffalo Soldiers. She gets out of the Buffalo Soldiers and she's headed west to claim some land that uh, that that she's acquired through her service in the military. And it's about how she gets distracted and waylaid on the way and ends up losing the land. Another film about black people acquiring land. 
and losing land. You know, this and is a black people aren't theme. the only people we, we're right. learning now about Native Americans losing. Oh, their oh, please, don't. Yeah, let's let's not forget that. And uh, and uh, it's a really interesting film. It's a low budget. It's really nicely done. I was surprised watching it the other night. I woke up. I couldn't sleep. I figured it was going to put put me to sleep, but it kept me awake. Yeah. Well, I'm tired of watching sports, so I'm going to look at some of these films. And I want to thank you very much for coming on uh, yeah. live from the Heartland. Anytime you want to come on, you've got something you want to share. We're okay. here for you. Okay. All right, man. Thanks. Right on, brother. Okay. Everybody else, stay tuned. We're going to take a musical break, and then we're going to be back with uh, our next guest. And that will be James Russell out of Portland, Oregon these days. And he's going to talk about the uh, the integrating... Uh, uh, restaurants in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and a fellow named Marquis Haynes, who was the best dribbler ever. See, we'll be back in a minute. Welcome back, everybody, to the Live from the Heartland show. I'm Michael James here in the 49th Ward in the great city of Chicago. And one of the things we try to do on this show is to talk to longtime activists. And uh, usually they're people I've known pretty well. They're my friends. And today we're going to talk with our friend James W. Russell, who was on the show uh, a long time ago, I think, with a wonderful book called Escape from Texas, about a slave that escapes and I really liked it. He has another book out now called Labor Guide to Retirement, which we're going to have him back on. Today, we're going to get a little bit of his movement history, and we're going to hear about when integration came to Sand Springs, Oklahoma, and the great state of Oklahoma, which was really great when it was more socialist. Now it's pretty right wing. But James grew up there in Tulsa, was involved in the Congress of Racial Equality, 
and he has some stories to tell. So hello to you, brother. Hi, Mike. Very good to be on your show. Very good to have you back. And um, you heard the introduction, so let's take it away. Why don't you give us a little bit of your movement history, and then we're going to focus today on CORE in Tulsa with the early sit-in and the integration of the Sand Springs, Oklahoma schools, and one of the people there who is perhaps the greatest dribbler in the world ever. Well, in uh, 1960, my preferred candidate for president was Richard Nixon. <laughs> By 1964, I had gone so far left that none of the candidates were acceptable to me. So I went through the, the incredible period of change through the movement. Um, I was involved in starting an SDS chapter, University of Oklahoma. Then um, where I grew up in Tulsa, um, the Congress of Racial Equality um, started sit-ins in 1964 which were the last major sit-ins of the uh, civil rights movement before um, the um, you know, 1964 Civil Rights Act, which made that issue moot. And uh, during those sit-ins, I got uh, arrested a couple of times. And then um, I don't know if you want me to go on to the Sand Springs story, because that comes Save it. Save it. Okay. <laughs> and do you want to tell us any more of your little bit of movement history? I know we met when you were at the SDS office or right. sometime in there back in about 66, I think. Yeah. Yep. I, I remember it very well. Um, you took us to the Chicago Art Museum and uh, we saw a Giacometti exhibit. Oh, nice. <laughs> and that was just very wow for me. Yeah. So I remember that quite a bit. Well, you yeah. went on to be a, uh, a professor and you, uh, you've written nine books and you taught at, in, in, in Mexico at the National University. You taught in Czechoslovakia. You taught in San Francisco. You taught at UTEP in Texas. Right. And you also were in Connecticut for a while, my home state, which I always liked. Mm -hmm. um, well, what I got from today when doing a little research and looking up stuff and going back and forth with you on emails was something I didn't know, that that what is credited as the first uh, lunch counter sit-ins were probably in Greensboro, North Carolina. And they were, I think, at a Woolworth, but I'm not sure. And you talk about the core Congress of Racial Equality, which I remember well, Tell us a little bit about those sit-ins and then how you ended up in Sand Springs. The sit-ins um, took place in um, 1958 in Oklahoma City. They were led by the NAACP by a woman who is very, very famous in Oklahoma civil rights, uh, Clara Looper, uh, a really wonderful uh, woman. and. Um, the Greensboro, North Carolina sit-ins were in 1960. And the, those are the ones that people usually credit as the beginning of the sit-in movement, but Oklahoma City preceded it by a couple of years. Now, I've since found out um, that 
there were actually uh, kind of sit-ins right after World War II as well. So I'm not sure who is the first in all of this. We're but, glad for uh, all of them. <laughs> right. But the Oklahoma City ones were, I think, very important. And for a while, I was using the formulation that Oklahoma had the first and the last sit-ins of the civil rights movement because the Tulsa ones uh, were in 1964, right before the Civil Rights Act. Um, I, I mean, I think it's a great formulation, but it might not yeah. be entirely true. Well, you were you were pretty young then. How did you end up getting involved with CORE? And uh, let me ask you, I know you mentioned that your first presidential candidate was the wicked Richard Nixon, but right. uh, were your parents progressive? What What led you to end up turning from Nixon to becoming a civil rights-oriented activist guy and getting involved with CORE and sit-ins in Tulsa? Well, I mean, I was not a red diaper baby or anything like that. Um, my parents, as far as I could make out, were pretty much apolitical. Uh, if there were anything, they were moderate Republicans. Uh, my mother was from the South. Okay. Uh, in fact, you may remember this, Mike. There was a time in the um, 1950s when every kid was wearing a Civil War hat. Oh yeah, I like, and I wore the Confederate one till I found out what the war was about. <laughs> well, I started wearing the Union cap, and my parents required that I change it to the Confederate cap. Oh. <laughs> and I was the, you know, the only one who was doing that. You know, so. You know, so it's a Southern family, or at least part of it was. And yeah. uh, so I have a lot of family stories like that about the South. You know, so I'm not a sort of typical person to go to the left. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe there well, are a lot of, of lefties come from that. Yeah. but Or out of the military. A lot of, remember, there were a lot of military brats in SDS. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, I, uh, you know, I, I just became hyper-political, uh, even while I was for Nixon, you know, um, and then as I read more, I became more persuaded by left-wing articles and people like Tom Hayden and pamphlets and so forth, and, you know, within a couple of years was involved in SDS, and at the same time, the sit-ins were going on in Tulsa. And so, you know, I was sort of going back and forth between Norman, where the University of Oklahoma is, and Tulsa, you know, during, during those days. So what happens when you, uh, you're doing a little research? There was a lot of uh, listing of things about what was going on in Sand Springs and the circumstances in the school. And I think it was you who had a core meeting after you had a victory raised the, the people were talking about what do we do next and i right. think that you you're the one that came up with maybe let's look at sand springs yeah i, I mean i you know went to high school in tulsa and after i graduated went off to the university of oklahoma my mother who worked in sand springs which was quite a drive away uh, then moved to sand springs Okay, so I would then come home from college to Sand Springs, you know, for the vacations and so forth. And I uh, 
notice that the town was deeply segregated, that there was one school for all black students from uh, kindergarten all the way up to senior high school. Meanwhile, in for whites, um, there was a regular three different schools for, you know, elementary and junior high school, high school, and that the high school had just been built five years earlier. So it was a very modern high school for that time. And it had, you know, many more course opportunities and so forth. So, you know, I'm, I'm this SDS member in the summer in Sand Springs, and I write a letter to the newspaper, you know, saying this, this ought to be changed. And I, I get a, a phone call from the editor. Um, you know, it's very nice, but he said they couldn't print that letter. It was just way too controversial. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, so I, you know, I brought it up in the core meeting. A couple of uh, black core members came up, said they'd help. Uh, we met in my house. 612 McKinley Street in Sand Springs. Still remember the address? That's what you say in the movie, too. Right. Yeah, well, <laughs> there is a, there is a movie about this that he made. <laughs> yeah. So then we walked down across the tracks. The black part of town was literally on the other side of the tracks, right? Okay. And this is really, uh, you know, there are probably not more than 400 people living there you know it's a very small pocket you know so so this story okay, about civil rights is hardly one of the major victories or anything like that it's a complete footnote but it was a very interesting one and uh so we started knocking on doors found out that a lot of people were interested in being able to go up to the senior high school but um, there was something of a clash between the teachers, okay, who were kind of the upper class of the community, and other parents. I mean, the teachers were rightly worried about their jobs. Okay, the other parents were worried about having the best education possible for their children. You know, so we end up um, going out to this area outside of Sand Springs. Uh, and uh, we're knocking on doors there. You know, I mean, these are these are houses with no electricity, no indoor plumbing. Okay, and they say, "Well, you ought to go talk to Mr. Haynes." Okay, well, Mr. Haynes was Marcus Haynes. You know, I knew who Mr. Haynes was. So we go to a very nice house. Okay. Uh, yeah, and knock on the door, nobody's home. Uh, leave a note saying there's gonna be a community meeting that night, actually, uh, and not expecting him to get this note, but it's okay. And so we're at the meeting at a church. The church is packed with people, okay? And there's an argument going back and forth, you know, about whether it's a good idea to, you know, go for integration of the schools. And, you know, and then somebody stands up and says, well, our school's good enough. We've had a lot of people who are very successful, including Marcus Haynes. Okay, at that point, 
somebody in the back goes, I want to speak. I want to speak. And this man walks down to the front, turns around, and he says, I'm Marcus Haynes. Okay, and it's true that I've been very successful in life, but it was because I had a very unusual talent. I never wanted to be a basketball player. This is what's so strange about this story. I never wanted to be a basketball player. I wanted to be a printer. The white school had a printing program, but we didn't have a printing program. So I could never become a printer. Okay. So he wins the argument hands down. Okay. Slam dunk, as you said in an article. <laughs> yeah, a dunk, right? Okay. <laughs> okay. And he's selected as a spokesman for the group. Now, we, the core members, are just kind of, you know, doing what community organizers do. You know, we're agitating, right? Getting people to do something, okay? And so we go to the school board meeting. Um, he, he presents the case, okay, and the school board refuses to integrate. Okay, then, um, you know, we decide what to do. The next morning, we file the first complaint in Oklahoma under the new Civil Rights Act about this school system. Uh, they call back the, the, the attorney, U.S. attorney for the Tulsa area, calls back, and um, the school board collapses. I mean, he basically tells them they have no legal you know, leg to stand on in this, they they collapse and the school becomes integrated. Okay, um, and that whole thing takes place in about three weeks. It's totally- Man, I wish they were all that easy. <laughs> You're right, right. It would be good if all things were, were that easy. Now, the, the coda to the story, two codas. One is 30 years later, I ran into Marcus Haynes in Connecticut. Okay, when He's 65. It's the last year in which he's playing with his team, the Harlem Magicians, kind of going from town to town, playing for Little League money raisers, you know, whatever. Okay. And so I go up to him and I say, We met in Sand Springs. And kind of goes like that. And then, then I remind him of the civil rights thing. And this huge smile comes over his face. And he says, you know, that's one of the proudest things I ever did in life. Now, this is a guy who's world famous, who has an enormous amount of things to be proud of. Okay, and you know, that was important, very important to him. The other coda is that I lost all contact with those people. And then in the last few years, we've put together a project to find the students who integrated. We did, we uh, pushed the school to put up a historical marker for that, which they did. And then, um, you know, we had a meeting to dedicate it and, and I made the, the film about those two things. Is there any way people can watch that film or do they got to go through your website, which is, you could tell people what that is. I tried to, I know you sent me a link and I watched it and I'll save it. But when I put the link into uh, Google or something, I, I didn't get uh, access. 
Yeah, we're not quite ready to just let it out there. Um, okay. There is a preview. Um, if anybody goes to my website, you can buy a DVD for 20 bucks of it. Um, and if you're a reporter or something like that, um, I'll send you a link. Uh, so it, there are ways to get to it, but we're not quite ready to put it on YouTube. Do you plan to do that? Eventually. Good. Yeah, it's a nice little film. You know, it's a half hour and you have a lot of the people there, the class president, a white guy, he right. uh, talks about it and they talk about, uh, a number of people talk about how uh, they were sort of shocked about what people had had to go through. They didn't mm -hmm. know about it. It's, it's a nice little film. It's uplifting. And um, while I'm at it, I don't know if I already brought it up, but you did have, did I already talk about the Madison film? <laughs> you just touched on it. Yeah. Yeah. You have a film about the TAs in Madison. Uh, yeah, that's, that's on YouTube. Now, and what is that called? The Wisconsin TA Strike. Have you made any other films besides these two? No. I had no idea. You, I may, It's inspiring me to make short films or to get my kid to do some. <laughs> but well, I think it's good for people to see these things. Yeah, I mean, I think if you have a good story, um, even if you're not a professional filmmaker, you can figure out how to do the basics of it, which is what I did. I'm not a professional filmmaker. Yeah. Well, you do a lot of writing. One thing I did, uh, I didn't know a lot about Marcus Haynes. Um, I did look up his uh, daughter is married to Drew Pearson on the Dallas Cowboys. His son is uh, a place for the Carolina Panthers. I think they're the last team in the league these days. But um, and it, I saw some footage, which is included in your film, of him doing all kind of amazing dribbling things that no one else used to do. I have a good friend, Russ Bradbird. He's also an author, um, and he teaches. He was a coach at UTEP and at New Mexico State. And um, he told me, I asked him, did he know Marcus Haynes? And he said, no, but one of my former players at Moorhead Junior High, I don't know where that is, went on to play college hoops at Langston University, a historical black college university, which is where Marcus Haynes went to. And um, so he knew about him. And he said he, this kid that he had was one of the few white players there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. Let me ask you in the time we have left uh, to tell us briefly about your latest book, A Labor Guide to Retirement, but not too much because we're going to have you back to go into it in depth. And uh, give us a little, you know, a little synopsis. Retirement plans are extraordinarily boring for most people. So it's kind of a hard sell to get people interested in them, but they're really, really important. Um, if uh, Assuming that you don't want to spend your final years as a greeter at Walmart, okay, <laughs> that you want to have some, you know, ability to carry on living the way that you're accustomed to. And we do have a retirement crisis in this country because 401k plans have not uh, been sufficient. Old-fashioned pensions were great, and they continue to be great for a lot of people, including myself. Um, and 
so there's a lot to be known uh, about retirement plans, including Social Security, which is the best plan we have going. But there are a lot of, of bad interests who would like to even eliminate Social Security so that we're all just really, uh, you know, going into retirement with hardly any miserable. Yeah. Well, we'll talk That's more it. about that. I, uh, you will come back on. I hope. Love to. Good. That'll be great, and we'll do that. And I, w I would like to ask you about Oklahoma and its uh, rightward shift and what's going on. But we'll save that for the next time. So James okay. W. Russell, longtime activist, wonderful human being. It's great to have you on, and I want to really thank you and wish you well. And I will be in touch with you in the next few days about booking another date. Great. So for everybody else out there, thank you for tuning in or watching live from the Heartland. You can get us at youtube.com slash heartlandmedia all the time. We're on WLUW on both AM and streaming, but the tower is out and being repaired, so you can't get us that way. You can get us streaming. And we'll be back next week. I want to thank everybody. I want to thank our guests today, the filmmaker Floyd Webb, the filmmaker, author, activist James Russell. I want to thank Tom Clark, Katie Hogan, Lynn Orman, and my son Hal James, our engineer, for making it all possible. Do good in the world. The world needs all the good that you do, that I do, that we do together. Over and out, all power to the people. See you next week. a dream awaiting I can see it in your eye it may not come easy but you know you've got a friend I'll be by your side the entire ride just let me hear you say amen are you doing doing are you doing the best you can Tell me, are you doing?